I assume I still sound horrible. It's about the same, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you sound yeah. like Cher uh, in the middle of uh, Turn Back Time. Eh, you know, that that could be good, though. Welcome to Mintcast. This is episode 312, and we're recording live on Sunday, June 30th, 2019. Livestream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. We're in the Mintcast channel in IRC at irc.spotchat.org. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us on MeWe, Facebook, the Mintcast subreddit, chat with us on Telegram, Discord, or post directly at Mintcast.org. This is Leo, and with me today is Tony Watts. Hey, what's up? We got Moss. Hey there. Joe is indisposed at the moment, but should be here soon. And we have today with us a special community guest, Oliver Kelly. Hello. And we are live. First up in our wanderings, I've been playing with Samba for the show. Tony Watts gets wired. Moss is distro hopping. Uh, Joe's mostly worked on some headphones, but played some Borderlands 2. And Oliver has been blogging and reaching out to laptop vendors here lately. Then in our news, we talk new releases. Just about everything that we've got this week is a new release. In our innard section, we talk Samba, NFS, and R-Clone. And we finally hit our listener feedback. So this week, I have been learning more than I want to with Samba, but I think it's kind of been a good experience overall. And earlier, I think it was yesterday, someone had tweeted about it, and Mintcast retweeted it, but it was someone asking, uh, what do you think is easier, like Windows 10, Linux Mint, and a couple others. And uh, I had tweeted at him that I think what's funny about all this is that Linux Mint was easier to set up with Windows sharing than Windows was. So we're going to cover that a little later on in the show, but uh, it's been pretty good. I think I think the real thing with that is just using Cinnamon. If you're using Mate or Mate or XFCE, you, I don't think, we tested a little bit, I don't think you have all of the options that you do in Cinnamon. So if someone ever asks you, why are you using Cinnamon over... Uh, Mate or something else. This is one of the reasons. File sharing is slightly easier in Nemo. Um, and uh, as well, I dove deep into Fedora 30. I'm finishing up a blog post right about now. So by the time you get this episode in your podcast catcher, um, I will have finished up this blog post. But it's a, a blog post about cockpit and installing virtual machines inside of it using the plugins that are available to you in Fedora 30. And it looked like it was going to be just like press the button and then it works. And it wasn't. It wasn't. I got some really cryptic messages like your CPU doesn't support virtualization when I know it does. And after a bunch of digging, it turned out you just had to install the QMU KVM package. But here's what got me. You install the machine's plugin in the in, in, in the cockpit interface. It should do that for you. 
it will it leads you on this wild goose chase of trying to figure out what's going on with it and yeah i don't know it took me a couple hours of digging to actually figure out that it wasn't what it was telling me the error message was pretty cryptic uh it was totally something else and the other thing that i like to do is on my vms i like to bridge them out basically put them on a switch so that they communicate directly with my with my uh actual network my lan and that's not so easy to do. There's no, you can bridge a, a network adapter in cockpit, but you cannot add a VM to that bridge, which is not that great, honestly, cause, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just the way that I like doing it and nobody else likes doing it. But if, uh, if you use VMs like this, if you put them on a bridge or on an external switch or whatever, uh, let me know. Maybe I'm like the only guy that does it that way. But anyway, wasn't natively supported. The bridge was, but adding a VM to it wasn't. So you had to dig down and um, edit the XML file manually, which is kind of scary, though the VIRSH, the Versh uh, command, prevents you from totally breaking it. So that's that's not so bad. Um, but yeah, was, uh, I don't know. You had to do a lot of searching to figure out what you wanted to do. And, uh, yeah, we left it in here, but, uh, Oliver insisted that I mention that I still haven't finished Arch. That is true. <laughs> Get it done. I will. I will. I will. Uh, actually, I don't think we have a whole lot to do this next fortnight. So, uh, this will be my opportunity to finish installing Arch and, uh, and get done with it. But I'm, I'm right on the verge. I just need to install the desktop environment. So I think, uh, just to get it done, I might just do GNOME desktop and just be done with it. Cause I think that's, uh, I may be stepping on some toes here, but it's everybody's favorite desktop environment, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that'd be contentious. You know, my favorite. Anyway. Not. <laughs> anyway, we got Moss playing uh, playing around with some more distros. What do you got for us? Well, we got episode three of Distro Hoppers Digest out and into the wild, and we're already getting good comments on all sides. We hope to be adding more chatter, as well as information on languages and accessibility, although we're a bit undereducated on the latter. And thanks to a rebroadcast via Hacker Public Radio, Episode 1 has reached more than 1,500 downloads. My my comments on Solus OS from Episode 1 have been almost completely positive, for which I am grateful. Uh, I went to try and install Open Mandriva LX4. I really wanted this to happen. I had 3.03 working great before. It had some things that I felt needed to happen, and they said, well, we're working on that for 4. I tried the alpha, and it wasn't ready. I tried the beta, and it wasn't ready. I tried the final, and the system locked up, except for my mouse pointer, just by setting my external monitor before installation, I couldn't even, I hit the install button and nothing happened. Nothing anywhere happened. I'm getting some really odd responses on the Open Mandriva forum on this, but so far there is no solution. I have upgraded, uh, can't talk here. I've updated my distro box, the little box of color coded jump drives to install UPicket distro on other people's machines. The current version is posted to our public Discord group. Current residents of my box include Open Mandriva LX4, Fedora 30 Workstation, Gecko Linux 150.0 Static, MX18, the 15 January 19 snapshot, Linux Mint 19.1 Mate, Deepin 15.10, Ubuntu Budgie 19.04, Ubuntu Mate 18.04, 
Farron OS 2019, Bodhi 5.0.0, Sabayon 19.03, Matei, LMDE 3, Cindy Cinnamon 64-bit, and Slackware 64, 14.2, Live 1.2.0. I swear it sounds like you're just reading the DistroWatch list of people's favorite distros. Hey, I've only got 13 distros in my box. That's all there is. Just. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, work. I'm still full-time. I could switch to part-time any week now. They have hired a new person, but she hasn't cleared all the tests and and background and all that stuff. Uh, that'll give me some more time and some less money. And that's both of those. Yeah, you know, more time is good. Less money is not. Uh, and now, thanks to Joe, I'm on the Linux Mint Slack conversation. I wonder if Joe's around yet to talk about that some more. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I had originally emailed root at uh, linuxmint.com in order to see if we could get some review units of the Mintbox Mini. And um, I'm surprised, Clem emailed me back and uh, passed my request on to CompuLab and added us, well, me at the time, to the um, media Slack for Linux, Linux Mint. And I let the rest of the crew know, and I guess Moss was able to use the link as well and get set up there. And hopefully we'll get everybody else on there soon. Um, but over the last two weeks, mostly uh, I've tried to avoid computers for a little while. I was getting a bit burnt out. So I worked on a lot of headphones. I busted out all my old headphones and finished up from the box of broken stuff that I had and got a whole bunch more put together and ready to go. Gave some of them away. I have a, a couple of them that I'm planning on sending to moss here when we next make it to the post office and um i i did end up having to fix my windows partition on my laptop because the dlc the final dlc for borderlands 2 came out and it's available for windows and mac but not for linux yet so i i was playing the heck out of that i I did finish the whole new area with one of my higher level characters and they added eight more levels so i'm not quite done completely leveling up and getting overpower again just because I, i really enjoy the game um, I, I was surprised when I did the uh, Windows installation because I had to do a complete reinstall for that and it did not interfere with my grub at all. My grub still worked fine. It found the Windows partition just fine and I didn't have to redo anything to make it work as a dual boot system. And now I will say that uh, the DLC for Borderlands 2, it was incredibly fun. It added a new story. It's supposed to be bridging the gap between two and three. Uh, didn't take long to get through, but it's definitely worth it. And it's free until July 9th. Now, um, Tony, I understand you've been playing with OBS. Yeah, that's probably the most recent thing I've been into because that was just last night to get it going for a uh, live streaming today. But 
We're live streaming. It works. And I have to say, it was really pretty easy. Just uh, apt install OBS-Studio and you're pretty much good to go. Um, has built-in options to just kind of point it at YouTube. Didn't have to do anything to configure the audio. Uh, in fact, I installed it on like three different machines. That was the biggest challenge I had was just figuring out what machine I wanted to run it on for the live stream. But it worked, so that's awesome. And I think uh, anybody really can can do that if we need anybody on the crew to run it. So that's good. Um I've been up to a whole bunch of stuff, I guess, because uh, I haven't been on for a couple episodes. But uh, one of the things I'm excited about is basically the network in my house has improved quite a lot. Um, I use Spectrum Internet, and we have my wife happened to be talking to them, and they mentioned that we could have a higher internet speed for $20 less per month. So we went ahead and did that, and now we're getting speeds over 300 megabits a second, uh, which is way more than we need but pretty awesome and uh with that i also went ahead and wired internet to the basement which is where i'm talking to you guys now and where i typically do so um kind of one of the things that drove that i've been meaning to do it anyway but i was just kind of having uh, some uh issues with wi-fi being flaky and and i've been working from from home and doing my job from home quite a bit lately and uh so i got a little fed up with it and on my lunch hour i finally managed to drop a wire into the basement and i've got a um, network switch that i fashioned out of what was a wi-fi range extender and is now running ddwrt and it's configured as a switch and uh, i've got uh, a few machines hooked up wired down here so that's been great um, and you know should be nice and stable connection for talking to you guys among other things and, uh, what's the uh, what's the speed test on the uh, on the things that are on the other side of that range extender? Still over three hundred. Really? Yeah. Um, I ha- I really only did a quick speed test or two after I got it hooked up, so um, I haven't spent a lot of time on it. But yeah, it was like three forty six upstairs, and it still went about three oh one or something downstairs on the other side of that wow. uh, switch. That's pretty nifty. That's great. Yeah, I'm really happy. Um, so after all that being in place, um, I, I've been meaning to uh, put my server down here in the basement too. Um, so I have been um, doing a media server off of a computer in the living room that everybody else uses. And so invariably it gets rebooted and uh, my kid is uh, in the Windows partition playing Steam and stuff like that. So I wanted it to be a dedicated server that nobody would touch and it would just run all the time. The only thing I was waiting on was to have wired internet downstairs in the basement so I could kind of put it down here out of the way. So I did that um, and I ended up using Kubuntu for the server OS, which is probably kind of a weird choice, I guess. But I I think in my mind, I, I wanted a GUI and really any Ubuntu derivative was probably fine. Um, except Ubuntu itself. And I learned that the hard way. <laughs> I gave that a spin. And it's a kind of an older computer, and GNOME was just way too heavy. Um, so I, I ended up going over to Kubuntu. And KDE, we've talked about this before, is actually pretty light. Um, it's, it's really kind of right up there with some of the uh, distros you'd think of as being, or desktop uh, environments you'd think of as, as being the lightweight um, DEs. So um, that's, that's working really well. Uh, it's basically serving up media for uh, Plex and Cody for the most part. 
So uh, a couple more things. Um, this is just kind of a random weird one. Uh, I've talked a whole lot here about my arcade machine and that I put a pie in, and I did all that fairly recently. Had a fairly new SD card from Micro Center, um, you know, a couple months old maybe. It just died. I've never experienced that before. Um, but where did you say you got it from? It's a Micro Center card. So it's one of their Micro Center branded ones. Correct. With all of their in-house memory, I have been about 50-50 on it working for any given amount of time. Interesting. Well, I replaced it with a SanDisk, so hopefully that's a little better. But I've used the Micro Center cards before, and I've had pretty good luck, really. So anyway, that just kind of surprised me, I guess. But no worries. Easy to... I didn't have a backup, though, so I'll have to rebuild... um, um, the RetroPie build for the arcade machine again, which not a huge deal though. Um, let's see. I moving on from that. Uh, I did uh, buy a new car stereo, and that was because I've been just using the auxiliary port and this really old radio that I've had forever. Um, so th- that auxiliary port wore out, and finally gave me an excuse to um, buy a stereo in my um, car that supports Bluetooth now. So. That's fairly life-changing, actually. Um, I just wasn't going to do it unless I, you know, was pushed to, which I finally was. Um, it was. It's a weird experience, though, buying a car stereo that doesn't play CDs. I finally was like, yeah, I don't really do that anymore. So it's just a media thing. It's bizarre. But that's that's the world we live in today, right? Do you guys still You'll use You'll just discs? have to download my CD instead of uh, play it. Yeah, that's what I'll do. I just don't really use discs anymore. What about you guys? You guys still using optical media at all? Zero. I use no, no I, optical media at all. I have a tape deck adapter. Okay. Yeah. Bluetooth all the way. <laughs> the, yeah. Yeah. So my wife's car has Bluetooth, but mine doesn't. Yeah. So, you know, the the coolest thing about that for me is that I know exactly when she's home. Because my phone will be like, you're now connected to the car media center thing. And I'm like, oh, hey, she's home. <laughs> But um, yeah, I'm still auxiliary in my in my truck. So yeah, I was happy almost. to do that. I'm uh, almost there. Okay. Well, you know, I was happy to do that as long as that worked, but it stopped. So then, that that means no more podcasts in, through the car speakers, which is no bueno. I had to fix that. Yeah. Well, as soon as as soon as uh, that decides to up and die, I'm gonna be with you. I'll I'll go Bluetooth. But yeah, eh, I don't know. It works just fine. So yep, yep. Don't fix what ain't broke. Right. Right. So, um, just one last thing. Um, I have a OnePlus 3T. That's my phone I've had for the last couple of years. And I had cracked the screen on it, um, which invariably uh, happens on some of my devices. Um, Just, you know, anyway. So, I got the screen replaced. And after that, the screen wouldn't consistently wake up and I, I thought it was something with the repair and the guy even put another screen on it um, and it was still kind of behaving the same way and after digging through a bunch of forums I finally found where somebody had had a similar experience and it was because the aftermarket replacement screen wouldn't play nice with Lineage OS sadly I had to go back to the stock Oxygen OS because of that issue and it worked fine after that but no more custom roms okay so what's the main difference between lineage and oxygen not a ton um i i guess um 
there may be some cosmetic differences. This is, since you asked me, this is kind of a weird one, but one of the things that I like about Lineage and some other custom ROMs is that the uh, volume can be controlled separately for phone versus notifications and everything else. Um, and Android stopped building that separate volume control uh, many versions ago. And they brought that back in in Android Q, though. Really? I hadn't heard that. Okay, that's... Yeah, I'm, I'm on the Pixel 2. I've got it in Android P, but it doesn't adjust. You, you have to really go into settings and adjust them separately. Frequently, I find that when I turn the volume down, I'm just turning down the volume of one of the things... Yeah, and then when I turn it back up, that doesn't turn back up, and so it's yeah. a mess. But we do have the separate controls; it's just harder to use in P. Yeah, yeah so in Q and the beta, they've um, updated that massively, so you can press the volume and then tap a button, and then it slides out and gives you all the separate volume controls. It de- depends on what media if you've got media playing already, but then it's a really quick way of doing that. So they they regressed on that because I remember before I left Android it was like that and I don't remember which one I was on maybe it was oh maybe it was oh and then so then it broke and then now it's fixed in Q is that right well yeah, it okay looks like it. but I'm specifically talking about like Ringer versus notifications so you're saying you've seen those separately for a while Leo. No, okay, maybe, maybe, because I was thinking like the the media versus yeah, uh, yeah, ring, ringer slash notification. I think yeah, I think that was always just one. That's maybe. it hasn't always been one. Um, I somewhere in a four dot something that it got merged into one, which is oh, I, w- okay. I wouldn't have gotten this deep if you guys didn't ask me. But it's you know it's one of the features I kind of like in the custom ROMs because um, I don't really ever need my phone to make noise if it's a notification about something or whatever. Um, but if somebody calls, that's more likely to be urgent, especially in the middle of the night. You know, I want my ringer to actually make noise if somebody happens to call at 2 a.m. because that's going to be an emergency versus, you know, um, a message on Discord, right? So, yeah, I get you on that one for sure. Yeah, anyway. Um, but just, just sad, no custom ROMs on that. And I thought it was weird and I have no idea how to get a legitimate OEM screen for this thing. So that's, that's that sad story. But that's, uh, everything I've been up to. I've, I've been away for a couple episodes. So I know that's quite a bit, but Oliver, good to have you on, man. Uh, I want to talk about what you've been up to. Oh, first off, thank you guys for having me on. Um, honor being here. Uh, I've been, blogging over at my blog. I've posted a few links in the Telegram group and the Discord group previously, and that's at allz.tk and that is an O for allz or a zero. I sort of bought both domains for that. Um, but yeah, my recent blog was about the uh, Juno computers. I reached out to the guy there um, through their website and he was really nice. He got in touch said, would you like to uh, try out all our laptops? I was like, sure. So I hopefully I'm getting that in the next few weeks to test. Awesome. Um, so on the basis of me um, writing, I mean, it, it wasn't a very, like, I'll do this and you give me a laptop. Was, I wanted to promote a small brand to help my blog and help them at the same time. It was sort of a win-win and uh, then I reached out recently to uh, Star Labs. Um, not sure if you guys heard of them. There's another UK-based uh, Linux laptop company. Um, they've put me on the waiting list for their Starlight 
um, Star Labs Light and Star Light Top or something. Um, but apparently there have been issues with the manufacturing process for the reef, um, the review ones. Uh, I've also been um, playing Rust. Um, my friend gifted it me, and after seeing on the Proton DB, uh, it being absolute garbage recently, I was a bit wary and I was quite depressed that I was going to have to go back to Windows and put my Windows SSDs back in. Uh, but it turned out that they've fixed it again. So uh, I was up quite late last night playing Rust with my friends on Linux. Uh, it does have a weird bug still though, um, which is uh, some textures with their new with the new Unity engine makes certain shadows turn not into a shadow and it makes it like a disco ball. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> but on the on the Juno and uh, Star Labs thing, yeah, I just wish they would send them over here so I could play with them too. Well, they do both deliver to that way, so it might be worth getting in touch. Yeah, and Firmware does there. not. Juno does. Nifty. I did see that Juno does ship to the U.S., but are they're, they're UK-based, is that right? Yeah, they're based in London. It's a small UK company. Yeah, I imagine shipping a laptop 50 miles is a, is a little easier than shipping it thousands. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Very cool. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to do was after you get one of those, uh, one or both of those laptops, I'd like to have you back on so you could tell us uh, whether or not it's worth it. Because if, totally. if it runs Ubuntu or if it runs whatever... Um, then it'll run Linux Mint just fine too. Yeah, I'm, um, I had a good discussion with them about uh, the OS as they throw in it, and they say that they're happy for me to put whatever to test. So I'll be giving it a thorough rundown of different OSs and see what it, which, because they, they put elementary or Solus on it as a default. You can like choose that at um, checkout. But, wow, yeah. Solus is a, is a, I won't say really a weird choice, but it's definitely one of the first that I know of. Yeah, it was out Solus. there. It's uh, something I wouldn't have thought, you know, let's just put Solus on it. Really? That's cool. That's really cool. And everybody uh, everybody always brings up the games they're playing, and I always forget to do that. And uh, Dota Undergrounds has just come out in beta uh, through Steam. It was on one of the banners when I logged in one day. And uh, yeah, so I installed that, and I've put way too many hours in there. I think over the past couple of weeks, I've probably spent like 10 hours on that game. But a lot of it is, uh, like, you can walk away from that game if you're just playing bots. So <laughs> I think some of those hours are me forgetting that I'm playing that game. But uh, it's like, um, I don't know how you'd describe it, honestly. It's like like chess, but not. Ah, it's, it's really weird. But it's it's Linux native, so no Proton, no nothing. You just have to have the Vulkan installed. The Vulkan. Install Vulkan, and you should be good to go on that. It's It's really fun. You should check it out. All right, and I think that's it for our bi-weekly wandering, so we'll head to the news. All right, so this Fortnite's news is uh, kind of all over the place, but most of it is just new stuff. And Moss had already talked about this, but Open Mandriva LX4 is out. But yeah, I guess Mossy had mentioned you couldn't get it running, so... Um, did you get, uh, did you try it in a VM or anything? I don't do VMs. Oh, that, okay, that's right. Bare it's metal, metal or nothing. Ah, I gotcha. Okay, well, maybe maybe we'll get some info on that in the, in the coming days. As but, far as computers uh, go, I'm a metalhead. <laughs> that's good. That's a good way to be. Yes! 
And Debian Tin Buster coming July the 6th. So, yeah, Debian doesn't move often, and Debian has moved. Well, they will move in about a week-ish. Yeah, yeah, right about a week, actually. And uh, this is one of the things that Raspberry Pi has already jumped on the train. We had talked in, I think it was Telegram, someone had asked the question, should I upgrade to uh, Buster or should I wait? And... Um, I guess this would probably be better in the uh, uh, in the feedback section, but it's relevant. So uh, I had said it's actually going to be fully released on July 6th, so I would wait. But the software and uh, all the all everything has been frozen since March, so they have been essentially beta testing this thing for going on three months now. So it's it's probably pretty safe to do. So if you if you just can't wait till July 6th, eh, go ahead and update. It's probably going to be just fine for you. That's four and months, this, Leo. Eh, three, four. It's been a while. <laughs> and uh, Raspberry Pi 4 is uh, is shipping Buster. So uh, I think I mentioned that. But yeah, so they jumped on the train a little early, which means that, yeah, you're already getting that Buster goodness if you got the Raspberry Pi 4 uh, version of Raspbian. And Josh is doing the desktop pie challenge. We heard of some woes in uh in the Discord in our in our little group Discord. Um but I think he's doing pretty good on the thing. So we're going to check in with him on the next show to see how that all wrapped up because he's doing uh, a two-week desktop pie challenge. I think we're through about a week so far. He's got a week to go. So next show, he'll have a full review on just how good a Raspberry Pi is when he's replacing his laptop with it. And so, remember, yeah. they told us that they were not going to release a new machine this year. Yeah, that was the other thing. So uh, Tony gets to Tony Hughes gets to beam next episode about one of his predictions coming true. But yeah, man, it's one of those things. What is it? Under promise, oversell. They're like, eh, it'll be ready in 2020. And then they drop it on us a year early. And uh, then everybody scrambles, and it's all sold out everywhere. I don't think you can get your hands on one of these right now. They're still having quite a few hardware challenge, software challenges on it. Was it me, or was it just very, very much dropped? Because I didn't hear any build-up to it. It was just, here's Raspberry Pi 4. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, I woke up one morning, and there it was in my feed. Hey, look, the Raspberry Pi 4 is available. Hey, look, it's sold out. Yeah, that's exactly how it happened to me. Like, I'm always late to the show because I, I tend to put my phone away and then forget about it for a couple hours. So I picked up the phone and it was like, Raspberry Pi is released. Yay. And I'm like, whoa. So it, that, that all just kind of settled in my brain. And then all of a sudden I go and try to buy one and then, yeah, they're gone. I mean, normally with stuff like this, there's a big hype train pre like build up to it. Like, get them never psyched to buy it. And then they give them a few extra weeks to... Uh, yeah, well, some more. Considering how quickly it sold out, they didn't really need to hype it up. Yeah, well, they they were doing an anti-hype. They were like, "No, guys, it's going to be 2020. Don't worry, uh, it'll be here one day." And then that one day was just a, a year early. So bizarre. So awesome, though. Yeah. So as soon as they get back in stock, I will pick one up. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting is they I can find them if you want the one gig, which I don't. Uh, why? <laughs> but right. those are about. I, I can see those at Micro Center, but you know, I, if I'm gonna get, if I'm gonna do it, man, it's gonna be the four gig, and that's the one you can't that's, get your hands on. 
That's what Same I'm saying. Here. Like, go big or go home. I mean, th- there are definitely uses for the one, you know, just high CPU usage, but low memory usage, whatever. But yeah, yeah that ain't me, man. I need four gigs. Well, I don't know what I'm going to throw at my pie. When your expensive computer is 50 bucks, I mean, you know, you can splurge. Yeah, right. Yeah, 55 bucks. Ooh. <laughs> and next up we have, uh, <laughs> I meant to change the title, but I didn't change the title, but it's the uh, App Explorer from... Uh, from Ubuntu, and basically, well, there's a couple things. Um, the Snap Store thingy is what I have uh, in here, but really, what this is is just the Snap Store, the the actual uh, Snap Store itself now has distribution specific instructions for how to get Snap on your uh, on your distribution. So you want this app or whatever, and you're on Linux Mint, click on the Linux Mint button, and it'll tell you exactly what to do. And I think we're kind of special in Linux Mint because Linux Mint ships with Flatpak by default, which means that, uh, yeah, we don't have SnapD, but it's a reminder in there to, uh, you got to install SnapD, and here's how to do it. It's super duper easy, and then you just click on the links and make it go. So it's really, really nice. And then Oliver has uh, a little bit of info about the UApp Explorer for uh, ARM. Is that right? Yeah, so um, obviously this this, this um, I picked, I to pick this up because based on Josh's Pi 4, um, I was saying how good it would be to get like OBS and stuff on it because it does hardware, hardware decoding and hardware encoding. Um, but obviously you said no way of building for it because it's not available on ARM. So I thought, oh, try a snap. And then he sent me a screenshot which says this architecture is not supported. Um, yeah, then I came across the snap store like search function and there's no way to filter. Then I found this website which will put some link in the show notes. It's a U app explorer which allows you to search for snaps and filter it by the architecture. So if you're on a, a Raspberry Pi, you can search for ARM HF, and it'll show all the snaps available for the architecture, rather than just, here's all the snaps, and then when you come to download it, say, it's not available for your architecture. So uh, I guess after, even after you searched here, OBS wasn't available? No, it's not available. Um, it's just not been built for that, uh, for the Pi. Right, right. I'm going to have to get someone like a Popey from a Snapcraft to have a look at that. Yeah, I think that's probably going to be the right thing. Well, that would be pretty cool, man. I would buy, I would totally buy a Pi just to do that for us. That way I can just, you know, flip it on, leave it on, and then flip it on, flip it off whenever I need to, to do that. That would be super cool. And then next up we have a new Mint Box is coming, Joe. Yeah, this was a bit of an exclusive for the Linux Mint Media Slack so there isn't really a link for it or anything. It's straight from Clem that this is coming out. And I talked to the um, CompuLabs guys as well. And it won't be out this year. It'll be out hopefully next year. But there's a new Mint box coming, and it will be based on the AirTop 3. And we probably will drop the link. Uh, Linus Tech Tips did a pretty good review of one of the top-end um <clears throat> AirTop 3s, and it's supposed to be a silent computer, and, well, mostly silent computer, and uh, it's it looks awesome. The stats on it are great, but if you go to the website for the AirTop 3, it's very customizable on what you can get, but they do have an idea of what they want, and there are supposed to be two versions of it. Heard it here first. 
And next up we have Linus Torvald sees hardware headaches ahead. Moss, what's this about? Well, Linus, at the KubeCon Cloud Native and Open Source Summit China on the 25th of June warned attendees that managing software is about to become a lot more challenging, largely, largely because of two hardware issues that are beyond the control of DevOps teams. The first, he said, is a steady stream of patches being generated as new cybersecurity issues related to the speculative execution model that Intel and other processor vendors rely on to accelerate performance. That model is the root cause of malware such as Spectre and Meltdown that have rolled the IT industry. Additional bugs in speculative execution with colorful names such as Fallout and Zombie Load are showing up more frequently. Each of these bugs requires another patch to the Linux kernel that, depending on when they arrive, can require painful updates to the kernel. Short of disabling hyper-threading altogether to eliminate reliance on speculative execution, each patch requires organizations to update both the Linux kernel and the BIOS to ensure security. Turning off hyper-threading eliminates the patch management issue, but also reduces application performance by about 15%. The second major issue hardware uh, looms a little further over the horizon. Moore's law has guaranteed a doubling of hardware performance every 18 months for decades, but as processor vendors approach the limits of Moore's law, something they've been predicting for 10 years now, many developers will need to re-optimize their code to continue achieving increased performance. In many cases, that requirement will be a shock to many development teams that have counted on those performance improvements to make up for inefficient coding processes. In the meantime, Torvald's note, noted updates to the Linux kernel are still coming at a rate of every three months. And the Linux team is basically working on a six-month planning cycle. There's no master five-year plan. Roughly 1,500 developers work on contributions to the Linux kernel, with 100 maintainers overseeing the implementation of these contributions. So, I don't know, that, that hits a couple of different points that I've, I've been thinking about for a little while as well. And one of the things that I have been kind of thankful that I've been team red for, AMD, for a while for is because I'm not affected nearly as much by a lot of these things uh, that he was talking about, like Spectre Meltdown. Um, what was it? I think uh, we were affected by Spectre, but weren't affected by Meltdown. We were not affected by Fallout question mark i think uh and in the most recent one uh i forget what its name is um it, we're, we're not affected by zombie uh, load. on amd zombie load yep that's the one uh we weren't affected by so you know it, it's not really a matter of i'm winning because i'm on amd i'm just less affected by these things but um i, I think they're finding a lot of the intel ones mostly because intel is like windows everybody has one um, AMD hasn't been very successful in the laptop market for quite a long time, up until about recently. Well, with some of the new processors AMD dropped recently, they're going to really be picking up steam. Oh, definitely, which means I think that we're going to find more Spectre Mel a lot of these speculative execution type vulnerabilities in AMD stuff because they get more popular. And, you know, this is this is the exact same analog for Linux. As Linux got popular, more and more things uh, became apparent that there was a flaw or a bug in this or that and we've got to patch it or whatever um so it's just one of those things that what what are we going to do because what are the options here drop x86 altogether and not not x86 as in 32-bit as in x86 as in the architecture 
Like what is that? An, is that even on the table? Not anytime soon. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Intel and AMD are, are full steam ahead on trying to compete now. So I think they're going to be around for a long time. And what are our what are our other options? We have ARM and RISC, right? Uh, that's pretty much it. Well, the latest AMD chips are almost twice as fast as the Intel and half the price or less. So that should be a double whammy for Intel. I think RISC is going to be the, the big thing. I, I would hope so, because, I mean, as far as performance goes, they're pretty low-powered, but uh, the performance is not there yet, so we're still waiting on some of that. But as far as the AMD 3000 processors go, the Ryzen 3000, oh, man, the moment that 3700 drops, um, I'm going to buy it. That one's a, that one's a have-to for me. Going back a few weeks with the old uh, Huawei and their being dropped from, like, use of ARM and stuff... They're going to have to throw some development into something like Risk, and with a company that big throwing money at it, they'll make it go quicker. I don't, I don't see it being too long before Risk is a, a big player between uh, AMD and Intel, and it'll be open, so they'll be able to jump on it. Well, that's true, but uh, Trump just did a major reversal yesterday and decided to drop the ban on Huawei. I think the damage is already done. I think they'll just turn around and say... See you later anyway. The question is, is Trump going to allow Canada to release Huawei's executive? But this is not a political show. Nope. And, and on the other point, the, the refactoring of the code to make it more efficient. I think everybody just got too comfortable on the software development side to, you know, just write the code and don't worry too much about the performance impact of what you're doing. And now we're just going to have to revisit that. And people that are writing... I won't say bad code, but people that are writing inefficient code are going to have to step up and fix that up. Otherwise, we're going to end up in a real bad situation when, uh, yeah, as, as Linus said, Moore's Law just fails to continue in the way that it's been going. But whatever. We'll see how it goes. I think we've got time. And then the uh, the last thing is uh, Ubuntu. Oh, so okay, yeah. This was this was one of those things that was it was and then it wasn't, then it was and then it wasn't. Uh, Ubuntu is dropping 32-bit support, but they're not dropping 32-bit support. So it, this is one of the times that I'm glad that we do this show every two weeks because we uh, we we miss uh, the reactionary part of all of this. So lucky for us. Uh, we saw over the last two weeks, we saw, um, well, okay. So it was like two weeks. Uh, it was a week prior. It was like a, the Tuesday before our show, Ubuntu, um, has been mailing back and forth about dropping 32 bit support. And they finally decided to pull the trigger on it. And then a steam dev on that following Friday picked up on that and tweeted out that steam was going to drop support for Ubuntu altogether. And then everybody started scrambling around. The internet burst into flames and we all decided that um, Ubuntu was going to die all in that moment. And then uh, oh, it was Wine as well. Wine also said it's not going to work if they drop 32-bit support. So then Ubuntu kind of rolled some of that back and decided that maybe we shouldn't drop all 32-bit support. Well, they weren't planning on dropping all 32-bit support. They were going to do like containerized 32-bit libraries or whatever. But anyway, that didn't matter in the fervor. So uh, then Ubuntu kind of backtrack on that and then Steam kind of backtrack on that. And I don't know where Wine stood on the whole deal, but overall, yeah, it's one of those things that um, turns out nothing is changing. So what do y'all think about all of that? 
I'm not dropping Ubuntu, but I am. I'm not sure. Um, I think the way they went about it was, it could have been better. They could have said, this is what we're actually doing, and these are the steps we're going to take to get there. Not just, oh, we're dropping it. Drop it like it's hot. Of course, I dropped Steam before I picked it up, so I'm not really the target for this. Yeah, I mean, eventually that needs to be phased out, so I think nobody can blame them for going in that direction, but um, the communication quality and timing both were just not the best. Um, things kind of really boiled over a weekend, uh, uh, and then, you know, that Monday or whatever, I guess, was when it got sorted, right? Yeah, it was very much like um, don't push to production on Fridays, and then they released that at the weekend, and no one officials able to respond really <laughs> right right it just you know it seems like a lot of your uh linux enthusiasts are vocal gamers are vocal you have linux enthusiasts who are gamers who catch one to this and of course the internet exploded of course well obviously they were going to support the 1804 um for the five years and then obviously with the paid extended support for 10 so these 32-bit um, libraries are going to stick around for the minimum 10 years. So they're going to be available. They're just going to sort of be frozen in 1804. Yeah, I don't think anything's really going to change, to be honest. Anyhow, so uh, on to the intersection where we can learn something. Alright, so we're going to talk about a little bit of Samba, a little bit of NFS, a little bit of R-Clone, and uh, we're just going to try and throw some stuff out there to maybe help anybody that's listening out on how to get all this stuff figured out. It's pretty interesting stuff. So coming off the heels of our SSH, uh, SFTP, SSHFS uh, conversation, we're just continuing on. And Joe's got a bunch of info for us. Yeah, well, this was supposed to be on Samba and NFS, but I I kind of wanted to go a little bit more off the beaten path for this one. And, and I had been asked to do just um, SFTP and setting that up, but the, the setup for that is extremely similar to the one for SSHFS. So, so I wanted to just not rehash the exact same thing and try and get something... A little bit new so i went out and got our clone and it really is a great tool for mounting cloud services as local drives at least for what it works with um it, it used to work with amazon it no longer does because of some of the policy changes at amazon and um it used to work with dropbox and does not anymore but uh, there is another way around that and i will get to that in just a minute um with this you're really using two commands and that's our clone config and it will walk you through the entire setup for um any one of these services that are listed and, and for the first two there's some config stuff that you can basically hit enter and skip and then go through the rest of it and it'll take you to the website and get you the um, code so that the application can work. And um, let's see, with Amazon, 
It does not work at all. It takes you to the web page for the verification, and it gives you some page that says Amazon doesn't do that anymore. And um, with SFTP, because it does have an option for SFTP, I was getting an error in our clone saying, couldn't connect SSH, SSH must specify host key callback. So I'm assuming that's something in their code. I haven't done a whole lot of research in to see if there's anything I can do on my end to fix that. Now, um, with Dropbox, if everybody remembers right, I think it was last year, they put in uh, limitations to the number of connections that you can make, registered um computers that you can have to three and i think that's why it no longer works with applications like this now there is a fairly easy way to get around it all you have to do is set up dropbox like you normally would on one device and then whatever device that is have the folder that dropbox boxes in set up as a samba share or an nfs share or any other type of share that you want including say an SSHFS share and just a really easy way to get around it all your computers will be able to access it it doesn't matter how many registered devices you will have and um i have a list here of all of the services that our clone supposedly can do and i know amazon drive doesn't work there's amazon s3 there's backblaze dropbox doesn't work there's an encrypt and decrypt a remote encryption and i'm not sure how that would work um google cloud storage which is not google drive um i don't know about that one Google Drive does work great. It mounted as a local. I was able to see all my files. I was able to make changes. It was quick. It worked just like it was mounted locally with no problems. Cubic I haven't tested. haven't tested local disk. OneDrive did mount. So I know they're like $70 a year for a terabyte or something like that. But that would be a really good way on a thin client to have a terabyte of storage if you have the extra money to do it. I haven't worked with any of the OpenStack stuff, and it says it does SSH and SFTP connections, but that didn't work. I did set up a Yandex disk account, and they give a free 10 gig, I believe it was, and that mounted and worked perfectly. And um, unless anybody has any questions, that's all I really have there. No, nifty stuff. Uh, I've got all the notes and all this kind of fun stuff to um, to do this, and I plan on actually doing a, a an additional blog post. So we'll link to that as soon as I get that done as well. To you know, to have images and all that other kind of fun stuff, so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. But Samba is easy on Linux Mint. So Samba is the funky. Linux name to mean SIFS or SMB. So SIFS is the common internet file sharing protocol from Windows. It's um it's a whole rewrite. So they basically just coded what um what they thought SIFS did and they got it really close. So to get this going is actually pretty easy to do. So uh but but there are a couple of things, there are a couple of places that you might slip up that I think uh, one of the things is pretty apparent on how to fix it, and the other is not. So let's let's talk about that. So for the most part, 
It's pretty simple. The way that you're gonna do this is open up a directory. It doesn't really matter where it is. So I, I would say create a new directory. I created a Samba folder in the SRV directory. So if you're looking at um, your file system, there's like bin and lib and all of that, and there's SRV. I created a Samba directory inside of that and then gave permissions to myself. So if you don't want to have to deal with any of the permission stuff, just create it in your home folder and then you're golden. You don't have to worry about it. Um, so just create a Samba folder somewhere. Right click on that guy and there is a sharing options button. Click on it. If you've never done Samba sharing before, you have to click uh, on the bottom. It says, let me see, Samba needs to be installed and your user account needs to join the Samba share group. So click on the little install button and it'll take care of it for you. Just authenticate, you know, drop in your password, hit enter. It'll ask you to confirm a couple of different things. Uh, one is to install Samba and the other is a, uh, a couple of different uh, dependencies that Samba needs to be installed. So you're just going to say yes and yes to those. And then after that, it's going to ask you to reboot. Now, I suspect it you don't actually have to reboot. Uh, I think the only reason it's making you do that is because you've been added to a group. And before you get the magic of a group, you have to log out and log back in. But to be safe, uh, the the prompt just asks you to reboot. You know, don't don't necessarily take my word for it on that one. Do what it says. Just reboot. I didn't test it without rebooting, so uh, I don't know that that's the case. But it feels like that might be the case. Anyway, after a reboot, uh, you can you just go back in and you can do the folder sharing. So right click, hit sharing options, and then you're able to turn on the share this folder option at that point. So once you flip it on, click create share, and that's it. It that is that that's pretty much it uh, as far as the sharing goes however there is a, a little uh, a little place where you're going to trip up and it's not really talked about just about anywhere so let me see where are you where are we at here so um so i turned that on and from another linux mint machine so i had two mint machines on the same network i had already figured out their ip addresses prior so if you don't know what your IP address is, you can just do ifconfig. And I suspect you probably only have one device that's not starting with a W. Um, well, I guess it depends. If you want your wireless IP address, that's W. If, uh, if you want the Ethernet, if you're plugged in, it's E. Oh, cool. And my sound might be better. I don't know. I didn't touch anything. It just started working. So we'll see. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, uh, so anyway, uh, just do ifconfig, you'll find uh, E for Ethernet, W for wireless, use that adapter, find that IP address, and that's what you're going to want to connect to on the second computer. The computer that you want to access those remote files from, you're going to want to use that IP address. So anyway, opened up Nemo, and um, in the I, I clicked on the little network down at the bottom, and then I saw I named my test machine Tessa1. Um, and it was visible. It was right there. It just said like uh, Windows record or Windows uh, Windows share or something like that. I didn't write it down, but you, it, it'll become apparent because it has the host name in it and it says like Samba share or something like that. And so just double click on it and you'll see all the shares. You'll see a print because it does print sharing. And then you'll see a uh, the name of the share. And in my case, that was actually just called Samba. So anyway, um, here's where the trouble comes, though. You will never, ever be able to log in. And I don't know why. 
I don't know why this isn't taken care of when you install Samba. Um, security issues, I guess. But here's the deal. Um, from a functional standpoint, I understand why. Samba is a re-implementation of a Windows file sharing protocol, which means that you're going to need a separate user account to make this work. So in Linux, if you want to change your user account password, you type in passwd, short for password. If you want to do this on the Windows side, you're going to have to do SMB passwd. So you can't do this until you create a SMB user in the first place. So before you're ever able to log in and get access to all of this stuff, you have to create a Samba user, which is separate from your Linux user. Now, where it gets kind of confusing is that Typically, when I set this up, I will set this up with the same username. So you're going to hear me say my Leo user and then my Leo Samba user. So they they are two separate users, but yeah, it gets a little confusing. So anyway, what you want to do is you want to add a Samba user on the machine that you are sharing the files from. So I was saying that, you know, share this folder, click the share, create all this, whatever. On that computer, that same one, you'll want to run a command called SMB passwd. So my command would have been sudo SMB passwd dash a Leo. And that will create a Samba share user named Leo and immediately will ask you to set your password. So just whatever you want it to be. And it can match your Linux username and password. That way, you don't ever have to think about it again. But if you ever change your Linux password, it, your Samba password does not change with it. So um, if, if you do make that change, do know that you have to come in here and type in SMB passwd in the command line and then match it up. So it gets a little weird. So long story short, this is why we covered SSHFS and um, and SFTP first. It's Linux native. You don't have to jump through all these hoops. It's kind of crazy. But once you get that set, Windows file sharing is actually easier on Mint than it is on Windows. And that, that's kind of surprising to me. But anyway, once you get your user connected or uh, created, go back to the remote machine. So I named that one Tessa2. So I'm logging into my Tessa2 machine and then uh, getting back to that share, clicking on network, clicking on Tessa1 Samba, uh, clicking in it. And then it asks me, do you want to log in with a registered user? I do yes to registered user, type in Leo as the username, type in my SMB password as the password and click connect. And then bingo, everything is there. It's all working. And it'll also show up in the left-hand side, right underneath where it says network. And then you can also set it um, in FS tab. Now, I didn't cover it this episode. If you guys want to hear about how to do the FS tab SIFS uh, share or SMB share, let me know. Uh, I do that when I set up some machines to be able to move files to and from the machine that does my Plex stuff. Um, so I've, I've, it's really just a you have to configure FS tab to make it nice, but that's really kind of it. So anyway, hopefully, if you guys want to hear about that, you'll let me know, and I'll uh, I'll cover it in a little five-minute uh, off-the-beaten-path kind of thing next episode. 
Anyway, so if you have multiple Samba shares, here's where it gets a little wonky. Uh, if you have multiple computers that you're setting up these Samba shares on, you do have to go create that SMB user on every single one of them and then manage the password on every single one of them. So um, this is where some scripting will come in handy, but yeah, it gets a little cumbersome. So that's yeah, just what you're going to have to deal with when you're dealing with a Windows file sharing protocol on Linux. So just be aware that's, that's kind of how it's going to have to happen. And then, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. If you're curious about how Samba really works outside of the Nemo file sharing, but I mean, this is why you want to use Cinnamon. Um, but if if you don't, if you aren't using Cinnamon and you still want to use Samba shares, I have the Ubuntu Samba How To. Now I know it's not a Linux Mint Samba How To, but Ubuntu and Linux Mint are pretty much twins in the first place with a couple tweaks. So anything that works on Ubuntu is pretty much just how it's going to work on Linux Mint anyway. So take a look at the link that I'll have for y'all in the show notes. Click on that and uh, get your Windows sharing on. It'll be pretty good. So that's it for my Samba share stuff. So I'll let Tony take over with NFS and all the fun stuff that he had to do to make that work. Cool. So maybe a good place to start might be why NFS, and I'm sure we can probably have some more um, conversation about that and advantages of NFS versus Samba versus SSHFS. Yeah, but uh, in my case, um, I, I had a pretty simple reason for wanting to play with NFS, and the main reason is Xbox One. For whatever reason, um, Xbox um, in their Microsoft store did release a version of Kodi. Um, and when they released it, it was a beta version, still is, I think. Um, and there's built-in support for NFS in this instance of Kodi, but not Samba. Where any other Kodi, uh, you know, installation I've, I've dealt with typically will have Samba support baked in. So... I don't know. That seemed really bizarre to me because this is a Microsoft machine. So I would expect that it would support Samba before NFS. It's, a, you know, we're talking about Windows share, um, but not so much. So kind of strange. But anyway, um, the Xbox One is, is kind of one of the main media streaming, or I guess is maybe the primary media streaming machine in our household. So um, I wanted to be able to use uh, the Plex server, which it does have a Plex app that you know plays real nice with Plex, but I also use Kodi for other things. So anyway, um, I did go about installing NFS, and that was one of the things I wanted to see work. But beyond that, I just wanted to set up an NFS share to be able to talk about it here and just kind of have a play with it. So I did that. Uh, I followed the instructions at vitux.com for installing NFS. Uh, they just happened to kind of be my first Google search result, honestly. Um, so I dove in from there. And, you know, the process wasn't wasn't too bad. Um, I'll kind of uh, set the stage a little bit. I am... Um, somewhat comfortable with the command line, but I'm not, you know, I'm definitely not a sysadmin or, you know, probably not to the level of some of you guys on the show. Um, so it, it has to um, be a fairly simple process for me to get on with it pretty smoothly. And I did. So um, the first step is you're going to configure your server. So having uh, just been able to set up a server in my basement and it's wired now, I was all excited about that. So that was one of the next things I wanted to do was install uh, NFS kernel server. So I did that. Um, you uh, just do the apt command to install that. 
you follow some commands to create an export directory, and that's where you're going to kind of open up the ownership a little bit so that it's not reliant on specific owners. Um, and then you're also going to assign client access through the export file. And this is where you're going to specify specific IP addresses or, or maybe uh, an IP subnet um, that you want to have access to this NFS share. And that was the only spot I really ran into some trouble. I just fudged the entry uh, where I was specifying my subnet to have access to this. So uh, I did that wrong initially and proceeded to the next steps. Uh, and I um, configured the clients and installed uh, the NFS client on a couple of machines. And from there, um, your next instruction is going to be to mount your NFS share uh, to a directory on your client machine. And I was getting an error indicating the server was not allowing that access. Um, it wasn't too tough to fix. I went back and then uh, went to Etsy exports and reviewed uh, that file. And I could see I had a mistake and I fixed my subnet entry. There was a typo there. Once I did that, I just uh, to be sure I restarted uh, the NFS kernel server on, on the server. Uh, and sure enough, once I went back to the clients, I was able to uh, mount the NFS share um, on the main computer in my living room. And this is where it kind of got cool. Um, I have a Plex server running in the basement. So I now have my um, directories for all of my media on the basement server right there in the living room. Uh, I went ahead and uh, dropped a movie file into the directory. Plex is set to automatically pick up any changes to the library folders, uh, and it happily updated with the, the new movie that I dropped in there. So that's cool. On any device in the house, I can um, access those shares, drop something onto the server if I want to for storage. If it happens to be MediaPlex, we'll update automatically. Um, so pretty cool. And it's really fast, by the way, too. Uh, that all happened very quickly. Um, so the last test I wanted to do was Cody because that's kind of what got me there. And that was really, really easy as well. Uh, one of the things I, I should probably should say right here and kind of stop, unlike Samba where Leo uh, went into ha having to set up credentials and you need a password, uh, that might be an option with NFS. I'm sure it is. But by default, you don't have to. So when I set up in Cody the NFS share, um, on the Xbox, I'm, I'm on there and uh, go into Kodi and, and browse for files. And one of the options is NFS. I choose NFS and uh, off it goes. Let's see if there's an NFS share on your network. Hey, sure enough, here's the IP address. Click that. Hey, here's your share uh, directory. And uh, off you go. So uh, really, it, it went pretty well. It was pretty simple. Um, so I want to get back to kind of the NFS versus Samba. So uh, probably different reasons for, for doing each one. Uh, I won't pretend to know all of them, but certainly uh, Samba has more compatibility. If I were to just choose one uh, without this Xbox thing being a factor, I know Samba is more widely supported. For example, there are apps on your phone that can access Samba shares and so forth. NFS, the support isn't quite as wide, um, but I thought you guys might have some more um, comments on when to use one versus another. 
Yeah, NFS is one of the Linux native things, yes. though. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's just the thing. Windows relies on its own file sharing. And because Windows is so huge, that just, yeah, it just means that Samba is going to be everywhere. Or on Linux, Samba will be everywhere, but everywhere else it's called SIFS. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's just one of those things that... Um, Which makes it more bizarre that the, that the Xbox One had NFS but not Samba. Right, well, isn't it was the that Cody weird. plugin, right? Yeah, well, okay, so it, it, Cody is an app on this thing, right? And then within Cody, you can do plugins. So I, after some further Googling, I now understand, I believe there are plugins that will allow you to, um, they, they call them, you know, virtual file servers or something, you know, uh, there, there are plugins for that. Um, but without any plugins and just looking at the defaults, yeah, I agree with you, Moss. I found that extremely strange. This is a Microsoft machine. It has the built-in support for Linux shares, not Windows shares. That's weird. I did notice there was a, um, and maybe this goes some way toward explaining it and I left this out. There is an option for Windows, uh, video share. Um, I'm not familiar with that. It's not Samba, but there was, you know, there was, that was there. So maybe that kind of explains that. So another thing I did, uh, just because I started going down this rabbit hole with NFS, I said, you know, Android is based on the Linux kernel. Can you use NFS uh, in Android and have this NFS share just kind of appear in your directory structure? I tried to look into that. I think that used to be a thing and broke with one of the version updates, but I spent way longer than I should have trying to see if that could be a thing. With that, I think we can uh, move along and check out Vibrations from the Ether. Vibrations from the Ether. Feedback from our listeners, emails, web comments, Twitter, whatever else we've heard. Okay. Uh, The first one is about splitting the show up into two. Most of what we saw were just were split just on their own votes. Um, we did have some feedback on whether or not we should split the show. Most of what everybody saw from the emails was don't split the show, but I guess a lot of the information from the uh, Twitter and the MeWe was go ahead and split the show. It might be nice to have it over two weeks. We're still in discussions on it. I don't think we've made any decision yet. We might try it out and see what happens. Uh, what's your guys' opinion on this? I think it'd be uh, to try. Yeah, I can understand where somebody might not hang on for a marathon podcast and taking it in smaller chunks might be a little more palatable. Uh, it's you know early to say what we might want to do long term, but it, may, it certainly may be something to try, and I certainly understand the feedback of those who have expressed that. Splitting the show does put more uh, work on the part of the person doing the post-show production. Yeah, well, that shouldn't... Well, yeah, I guess adding a separate intro and everything, but that shouldn't be too much extra work, especially when you have an extra week to work on it. Yeah, it's valid, but I think, um, you know, it's it's a fairly minimal amount of extra. I think it's more about what's going what's going to make it better. Well, we can try it out for a couple of shows and see what happens. We'll discuss it more. Probably next Saturday. I have my objections. 
Yeah, well, I'm only counting uh, people that have responded so far, but yeah, we're we're four to one right now. So if you haven't responded and you have thoughts on this, we still would like to hear some feedback. We, uh, as Joe said, we haven't really decided anything for sure yet, um, but the feedback is good. We're open to trying something, even if it's just for a while. But if you have thoughts on it, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Anything is going to help. Anything is going to help. So the next thing that we've got is uh, going Linux 371. They uh, they shout us out on this one. Um, Joe, I know I actually listened to the to their episode last night and a little bit today. Uh, but Joe, I know you are the one that that put this in there. So what do we? Got yeah, about this? this on uh, going Linux 371. They were talking about that article that kind of followed us around for a little while. Um, the one about. Integros and scientific Linux uh, going away and that it was time for Linux Mint to do the same. And those guys agreed with us that it was clickbait and there was nothing substantial to it. And it, it sounded like they were talking us out pretty well. So I, I wanted to make sure that we brought that to this show and shouted them out. So if it, any of our listeners don't listen to them already, give them a try. It's a really good show. And they did mention our show by name as they agreed with the Mintcast crew. Blah, blah. Yep. <laughs> Larry and Bill do a great podcast. So if you're not already listening, check it out. And they've got a good Telegram group, too. And Discord. Nifty. I might have to go join those just uh, just so I can have tons and tons more of unread notifications in Telegram. <laughs> right. I, I, I need more Discord channels. I know, right? Absolutely. Doesn't oh. everybody? Of course. Well, when I started in Linux, uh, I had one Discord channel that was me and my mates playing games. I didn't even know about Telegram. And now I have about 20 Telegram groups, all Linux related. Yeah, that's the that's the risk you take when you start getting involved in Linux anything is that there's everybody that wants to get into it and I don't know, so many questions to answer, so many people to help, so it's just fun. It's it's a lot of fun doing that, but it can be overwhelming at times, I can I can definitely say. So I got a uh email from Bob Long that uh I accidentally did not respond to. So uh, I actually didn't read through it until just now. So uh, we're going to basically do this from the seat of my pants here. So here we go. He says, uh, thanks for the update. And he was talking about the time shift thing that I responded to him on the last show. Um, he says, perhaps the show can include a segment on whether using that method to back up user data is recommended. And um, I guess to that point, uh, yeah, sure, why not? It's It's baked right in. And it's really just up to you whether or not you want to devote the space to that. Because your home folder is where all your space is going to be. And that means that it will certainly be uh, a lot of space. Depending on how many backups you do, uh, that could get to be quite a bit of disk space. Yeah, I think by default it's weekly, but you can do more. But anyway, he uh, he goes on to say that he has some questions about that, if, if that were recommended, and is only data that has changed backed up? Uh, right. Uh, so he's basically asking um, if it's only the data that has changed that'll be backed up. Yeah, okay, I think I said that even worse than than, <laughs> than I thought. Anyway, um, it's it's not quite a delta. Um, so like the, the difference between the last one and the new one. 
they're all hard links. So if you're coming from Windows, a hard link is not nothing that you would that that you would be familiar with. Windows doesn't have the idea of hard links. So a hard link is basically just pointing to the to to a file, and if you change one, you change the other. But if you unlink them, they become two independent files. So basically what I'm trying to get at with this is that if you delete any random time shift backup in the whole set, you're not losing anything except for what had changed at that time. So as far as uh, storage concerns, yeah, it would take up about the same amount of space as a delta would. But it's not, in fact, a delta. So it's, it's, it's a weird way. Uh, hard links are kind of a, a fun topic to get into. And then, uh, does each snapshot directory include a complete copy of the user data? Yes, but with hard links. So, but that means that you can delete them if you need to save some space or something like that. And he says, if not, the, then the user would have to hunt through older snapshots directories to find a file. Now, it would contain different versions of the file. So if you just want the most recent one, like you deleted a file, then that would be fine. But yeah, if you wanted to find out, um, you know, three changes ago, which one was that? You will have to go dig. Um, so this is where dates come in really, really handy. And if an older snapshot disappears, as it will, then the backup of, uh, the backup of the file will have gone. But if each snapshot directory includes all user data, then a lot of space would be used for each snapshot and more time taken for the backup. It seems a time shift without including user directory is a full copy of all files. And yeah, so without the user directories, time shift is really just a uh, a thing to make sure that if your system blows up because of an update, you can roll back. But yeah, by adding in the user files, you are adding in a huge amount of space, so you have to be careful with that. Um, and as far as I can tell, there's no, uh, he's still reading here or writing here. As far as I can tell, there is no way to tell time shift when to do its backup. Does anyone know? And then, uh, you can, you can actually just go and create a user created backup. Uh, I don't have it up in front of me at the moment. And I'm afraid if I like, if I move my body at all, my internet will get worse. So I'm going to not do that at the moment, but, um, there is a way to take a user backup and I'm pretty sure it's right up in the top part of time shift where you can, where you can click that. I think it's just a, it's just called backup, but, um, I can come back to that and, and add more to this if, uh, if I'm not clear enough on this one. Um, anyway, so time shift does operate at the same time each day, but many people don't have their computer on for long times. So if using it for a data backup to an external drive, as mentioned on the show, would mean leaving the external drive in the computer all the time. Uh, or how do you manage that? So, yeah, um, it'll do it weekly. But if I'm not mistaken, it's an Anacron job, which means that it'll just run when it uh, w- when it can. As in, if your computer's off and it misses its weekly backup, when you turn your computer back on, it will try to do that at its earliest convenience that doesn't impact you. Um but that does mean, yes, that you do have to have that external drive plugged in for it to work. Uh, so, you know, for, for desktop usage or whatever, yeah, just plug it in a couple, couple times a week or something like that, and it'll take care of itself for you. Um, but actually, I'm going to have to do some digging on this because uh, I don't really take off the external drive. So I'll have to, I'll have to play with this to kind of give you a better fully fleshed out answer as to how that works. But anyway, all these questions are really, really good questions. So... Anyway, uh, while talking about time shift, he says, the setup says for the schedule for daily, for example, number snaps not to keep in the help tool tip. I've not investigated this further, but some machines I've set up and not had turn on for several days. Oh yeah, so he's still talking about when 
is best to back up. Even though there were fewer snapshots there than set in the schedule, it seems like more like it was doing number of days to keep snapshots. I see. So there, there was some confusion about if it was going to take them versus if it was going to uh, keep them for that long. Um, I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to do some digging on that one as well. Anyway, uh, he uses free file sync, which is easy to set up and, and, uh, easy for the user. So anyway, so free file sync seems to be an alternative to time shift. But anyway, uh, so for a couple of the questions that I couldn't directly answer you on, I'm going to send you an email with, uh, with what I have figured out. So Bob, by the time you hear this show, unless you're listening live, I guess, uh, I'll have an email out to you. So, uh, yeah, sorry for leaving you hanging on that one, but, uh, give it a little bit. I'll get right back to you. And then Joe's got Levi up. Yep. Uh, Levi sent a uh, long message on <clears throat> MeWe asking about migrating from Windows Server to Linux Mint as a server. Um, he's saying that <clears throat> he's running Windows Server 2016 with multiple hard drives and it runs Plex which is not a problem at all on Linux. And um, there's an interesting setup. His wife um, has a laptop, and it's mostly a thin client. All of the data on it, it has a very small amount of storage, goes to the server, and then syncs up with Google Drive. And uh, for this... I would recommend setting up our clone with Google Drive and then using some type of cron job once the files are moved to the server to move it to the Google Drive, which would take it off of your system, but everything would be synced on Google Drive. So um, his next question was uh, about an FTP server for his IP cameras. That's no problem at all to set up in Linux. And um, let's see... Yep. The Samba shares issue, or the Windows file sharing issue, that is a problem. You could switch to one of the other setups that we've recommended today, but um, I don't know if there are still stability issues with Samba on Linux. I know Leo mentioned earlier that it was really easy to set up, but I don't remember any of them dropping, so it might be more stable that way. And... I had responded with a very short response to the email saying that I didn't see any problem with them switching from Windows Server to Linux. And that's all there is on that. I guess uh, if there's at all any possibility to stand up the Linux server while the Windows is still running, if you have like, you know, uh, multiple machines to kind of be able to do that so you can test before you take the original server down, that may be a good idea. But, I'm, you know, I'm not... Yeah. It- if you have a spare hard drive, the easy way would be to pull the Windows hard drive so nothing, absolutely nothing changes and, and set the Linux stuff up on the Linux drive. Then you can always switch back if you need to. Yep. More. Yeah, and, and at its at its heart, Linux Mint is Ubuntu, so anything you can do there, all the tutorials that you find for Ubuntu will work just fine on Mint as well. And I think uh, those of us that are married on this podcast would just say prioritize your uh, your wife's workflow first probably. <laughs> oh yeah, Plex can't go down for us. All right, so we had some uh, some long vibrations, so we'll head over to check this out now. I don't have much myself, but it looks like uh, Moss and a couple others have some. So uh, what do we got? 
Well, with a lot of thanks to Abhishek at its FOSS, we've got about four items here I thought I'd bring to your attention. The first is Kit Scenarist. It's an open source tool for writing screenplays. And it looks like it's really full featured and would do some people some good if they were into that sort of thing. Uh, the second, uh, there's an article on 11 mini PCs that come with Linux pre-installed. Uh, I would like to say it's only 10 because it starts with the Intel NUC, which does not come with Linux pre-installed. But uh, a lot of the others were based on it, and so they decided to leave it in anyhow. Um, still a pretty good article by Abhishek Prakash. And uh, open source Slack alternative Mattermost gets $50 million in Series B funding. They already had $20 billion from June. And so we've got something moving up on Slack that, uh, according to a lot of people I hear talking about it, is at least as good as Slack. And they've got $70 million to play with on top of that. And my... F yeah. yeah. Go ahead. We started using um, Mattermost for our group chats at work. And it works really well. I'm enjoying using it. It's nice to see my work bringing in some open source software. Heck yeah, man. For sure. If, um, if, if we didn't already jump on Slack, I think I'd be pushing for Mattermost. And the fourth article I've got, uh, Monitoring Network Bandwidth and Speed in Linux. There's a brief article by Sergio about uh, how to monitor your bandwidth and speed. And it's a good article, and there's not much more to say about it. Read the article. Thank you. All right. And it looks like Oliver has uh, raked us up a huge amount of cool stuff. So tell us about some of this. Uh, so, yeah, Firefox Phoenix, uh, F-E-N-I-X, is um, Mozilla's Firefox preview for Android. Uh, this popped up on my Twitter, um, and I thought I'd give it a whirl. Now, it is. it wasn't when it came out officially on the Play Store. But it now is. Uh, I got mine from the um, APK mirror. Uh, it looks really, really nice. Uh, it's super fast. It's very, very sleek. And the URL bar seems to be positioned at the bottom. So when you load a page, it, it, it feels like it's you get more screen real estate than you would with the, your normal browser because you've got the first, like, I don't know, thumb width worth of URL and then you get the web page. Um, the next bit of news I've got is the uh, uh, Linux Mint is going to be happy uh, with the Cinnamon uh, 4.2.0 is coming soon and uh, that's thanks to Peter Jones from Telegram for sharing that one uh, something else for Mint users which um, I was having some issues with my computer a few weeks back and uh, Leo helped me out um, going through uh, D-message logs pointing out a few things and then I came across logs which is a uh, it's a visual way of uh, viewing your logs and it groups it by um, different event types sort of like how windows do their event viewers if you're coming from a windows word um doing that sort of comparison which it's i thought it very handy 
Yeah, a couple points. So uh, the the Cinnamon 4.2 thing was written by OMG Ubuntu. And I swear the guy wrote it like he was, uh, who was it? What's his name? Um, Joey wrote it kind of like he was downplaying the awesomeness of making the operating system a bunch more stable. Maybe I just read it that way. I think I may have read that into it or something. But uh, but yeah, so I think the majority of 4.2 is going to be bug fixes and quality of life stuff uh, as opposed to, you know, big big huge system changing cinnamon whatever so um so yeah keep be be aware that's coming and uh yeah thanks again peter for that as far as the uh the logs thing goes yeah oliver you turned me onto this so i've actually been using this rather than going through dmessage or uh system or journal ctl and man it's really nice it's actually really nice so yeah thanks for that yeah, I mean, I had an issue just before because um, I disconnected and reconnected my PC through a fit. Uh, and obviously you can go there and sort your logs and you can go from boot or you can go from the last time your computer was on. So if I go back into there, I can see that it was Pulse Audio that crapped out on me, which sort of um, was fun. <laughs> yeah, I just brought up logs right now, and that's pretty cool. I know it, it's 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 nothing you couldn't get from Journal CTL or DMessage, but it's yeah, like it's a lot easier to yeah, get. Yeah, exactly. It's event viewer style. It's just right there, right in front of you, and this is easy to copy and paste into a forum post if uh, if you're having issues or whatever. So it's just easy to get to. All right, I think that's it for our check this out. So we'll head on down to our announcements. All right, announcement number one is, uh, yeah, I'll try and clean up some of my audio. But announcement number two is distrotest.net appears to be improving their servers. More of the site is working and there are clear signs of upgrades to be done. All right. This is what happens when a major article writer writes about your site and crashes it. (laughs) You, (laughs) You find out how much work really needs to be done to make what you dream happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, since that's the end of our show, we're going to wrap it up with uh, tell us where you can find you. So, Joe, where can we find more of you? Well, um, I'm on a couple other podcasts, including uh, the Linux Link Tech Show, which is at www.tllts.org. And I'm on the Linux Lugcast, which is at www.linuxlugcast.com. You can catch me on MeWe, and you can also email me, jb at mintcast.org. Awesome. And uh, he's not here, but you can find Bo at the undercastnetwork.com. Moss, where can we get more of you? I am on Triad Bardic College, Peaceful Hippo, MeWe. My music is on Bandcamp and all over YouTube. Uh, there's a young black South African gospel singer of the same name, so you can probably figure out which one's me um and you can reach me at moss at mintcast.org and tony watts more you you can always contact me at tw at mintcast.org and web presence i don't have a lot of other technical stuff out there other than mintcast here but uh my musical pursuits you can find my band echoes of savages uh on all of the media outlets and if you just check out tony watts on youtube or facebook you'll find some of my music solo stuff there too and you can also troll him on the discord too so add him that does work that's true 
<laughs> and you can find Tony Hughes on Hacker Public Radio. He's got an occasional blog at tony-hughes.blogspot.com. And you can get him on Twitter at TonyH1212. And don't forget Distro Hopper's Digest. .blogspot.com. And Josh, even though he's not here, I get to shout that we had uh, we actually did go and create him a mintcast.org email. So you can get him at josh at mintcast.org, edgyblocks.org, or all about code on Twitter. Oliver, where can we find more of you? So you can get me at, at Alzi, that's Alzi with a zero, uh, on Twitter, and at Alzi underscore on Instagram. Uh, you can also get me on my blog, which is alzi.tk. Uh, I also do random game streams on Twitch, which you're more than welcome to join. And I'll throw the links in Telegram and Discord when I'm doing that. Awesome. And you can find me at leochavez.org, where I had mentioned uh, I was going to release a post here pretty quickly about Fedora Server. Uh, you can get me at Twitter, Le- at Leo Chavez, and uh, the Full Circle Weekly News podcast. And yeah, I'm at mintcast.org too, I guess. Leo at mintcast.org. But before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Josh for working on redesigning our website, setting up the YouTube and Twitch streams, and providing lots lots of technical help. Specifically, Tony Watts for doing our YouTube stream today. Uh, Bitemark Hosting for providing the new hosting server for the website, which will roll out quickly. Archive.org for hosting all of our audio. And the folks at Hacker Public Radio for the mumble server that I just can't seem to stay connected to. The Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about as well. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem Clem and Co. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mint. Dang, that sounded good. That was all lined up on my end. That was better than usual, yeah.